Welcome to Africa Calling, a weekly Africa-centered podcast on news and features from around the continent by our correspondents throughout Africa. Hello and welcome to episode 17 of the Africa Calling podcast on February 12th, 2021. I'm Laura Angela Bagnetto. We'll be hearing about the top stories from the African continent, including correspondence, reports from the field, and analysis. We speak with our Maputo correspondent about what's happening in Cabo Delgado, Mozambique. And from RFI's Houses Service, we'll get more on SIM card registration that's causing people to panic. Plus, we'll take a look at the outcome of the African Union Summit and the elephants in the room. We'll hear about the situation of COVID-19 vaccine supplies for the African continent or the lack of them. And finally, from Liberia, our correspondent speaks with those affected by the country's civil war who are happy to see a war crimes tribunal temporarily come to the country. But first, a short recap of this week's news. Somalia's President Mohamed Abdullahi Mohamed, known as Formajo, failed to break a deadlock over how to proceed with elections. Formajo's term officially ended on Monday, with opposition groups saying they would not recognize his authority. Sudanese Prime Minister Abdullah Hamdok swore in a new cabinet on Wednesday that includes rebel ministers as part of a power-sharing deal. The ceremony was carried out amidst protests in a number of Sudanese cities over the economic crisis, forcing authorities to impose a curfew and close schools. The Senegalese army said Tuesday it has captured three rebel bases in the southern Casamance region with support of its neighbor, Guinea-Bissau, after separatists began fighting following a major army offensive in January. Ghana's parliament has had to shut down for at least three weeks after 17 members of parliament and 151 support staff have been infected with COVID-19. Correspondence Call In Mozambique, reports coming out of Cabo Delgado, the rest of region where alleged Al-Shabaab insurgents are fighting government troops, indicate that the military has been able to secure a number of areas and fighting is on the wane. More than 2,000 deaths have been officially recorded while human rights violations are on the rise. But what's really happening on the ground? Our correspondent, Charles Monguiro, speaks about the issues surrounding the ongoing fighting there. So, Charles, what is the situation on the ground now in the northern province of Cabo Delgado? Some reports say that security forces are pushing jihadists back. Can you give us an update on this? Yes, of course. Those are the stories we are hearing right now because... We are only hearing one side of the story, which is the government side. Normally we used to get uh, reports from the, from the insurgents because they used to have their own means of communication, such as the social media platforms. But right now we are hearing the Defense and Security Force saying that they are pushing the Islamists out of, out of the, 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 the area they had seen so far. The latest stories are about the Tanzanian national who was killed a few days ago in an operation which took place in Mokomia and Moidumbe district, which is in the inner parts of the province of Kabdelgad. And the defense forces were saying they are really driving the terrorists out of their hideouts. Oh, wow. But I mean, just this week, the new chief of operations in Cabo Delgado, Eugenio Usene Musa, died of COVID, and he was also the chief of general staff. So how will this affect fighting in Cabo Delgado? 
Well, it's the catch-22 for President Philip Nusi because when he was appointed in January, President Philip Nusi was quite sure that he was the right man for the job. He was one of the key commanders in so many battles in Mozambique. So President Nusi thought that with him, with Musa on, um, in charge of that area, maybe they were going to win the battle. But with his death now, things are going to change. It's like Miss President Nusi is going to go back to the drawing board and see who can actually replace him. You know, you've been covering this for some time. Have you or any other journalists been able to get to Cabo Delgado? And is there still poor cell phone reception or is it totally cut off? Well, it's quite difficult. In the last few months, in December and November, I was actually in Cabo Delgado. The security forces in the government are making the lives of journalists very difficult to cover Cabo Delgado. They don't want anyone there because they are saying it's a danger zone, but that's not what we are the media. We cover the story. We have got stories of journalists who were kidnapped or disappeared or even torched in that area. The government does not want anyone to go there to give us the story. So it's really difficult for us to get the information now. We only hear stories from the government side, some press releases they release, but we don't get actually to, to get to speak to people who are actually on the ground. What is the reason? I mean, is it because the government's losing the battle, or is it trying to protect someone or something? I mean, do, what, what insight do you have on this? The big thing is, yeah, we don't know what this war is all about. Because we are talking of the uh, Al-Shabaab, but this Al-Shabaab is said to be, it's not linked to the group that is attacking Somalia now. We don't know which, which Al-Shabaab is this. And the government is, has been saying for several times that it's a new group. So we really don't know who is actually into it. Some people are saying that there's some, some local people are involved. Maybe the government is trying to protect someone, but really nobody knows who is fighting who in Cabo Delgado. Mozambique said in December it would allow Portuguese troops to help deal with the attacks in Cabo Delgado. But is the government ready to accept more foreign assistance or has Maputo asked for more assistance? We know that some countries have pledged some help to help Mozambique, but the government itself has not been uh, quite sure if they want this uh, assistance or not. I remember in, in, in December there was a Southern African Regional Summit which took place in Botswana, but Mozambican President Philip Nusi did not go there, and that summit attended by leaders from the region was discussing Mozambique. So President Philip Nusi sent a representative there, which was the Minister of Interior, so everybody was asking questions. How can they discuss something from a country with interest and in the, the first person for that country is not there? So there were so many questions surrounding that. We know now that the EU has been trying to help Mozambique in curbing the rising insurgents in Cabo Delgado. It has agreed, but there is no formal agreement yet which is in place to... We don't know what, what, what kind of help the EU will be giving Mozambique because Mozambique itself has not made it public that it wants assistance in Cabo Delgado. It has been saying that they can control the situation. But the situation in Cabo Delgado is likely to affect other countries like Tanzania, Zambia and Malawi too. That's why the regional leaders have been trying to help Mozambique to come and curb the insurgents in that region. That was our correspondent, Charles Manguiro in Maputo. The whole country is presently under a curfew due to COVID-19, the first since the Civil War, and will run until March 7th. Earlier this month, President Felipe Niusi announced that the public hospitals are at 100% capacity and private hospitals are at 80%. Reports from the field. In Liberia, a Finnish court has begun the trial of Jibril Masakoy, a Sierra Leonean, for war crimes allegedly committed in Liberia in his role as a commander of the Revolutionary United Front, or RUF, between 2001 and 2002. Masakoy had been living in Finland for a decade and his alleged crimes were brought against him in a Finnish court. 
The trial will take a special turn on Monday as Liberia is set to host a portion of the war crimes trial connected to the country's civil war. The court in Finland will temporarily relocate to Liberia, Sierra Leone, and Guinea to interview witnesses and visit the scene of the alleged crimes. Africa Calling correspondent Darlington Porkba has been following this situation and files this report. It's a trial many have been waiting for here in Liberia. 50-year-old Gabriel Masakwai, an alleged warlord stands accused of committing crimes against humanity during Liberia's decades-long civil war. His crimes include the torture and rape of several civilians allegedly committed in Liberia in his role as a commander of the Revolutionary United Front between 2001 and 2002. It is estimated that over 250,000 people were murdered during the country's 14 years of civil war that ended in 2003. According to activist Adama Dempster of the Civil Society Human Rights Advocacy Platform of Liberia, the Liberian proceedings is a clear indication that war victims will one day get justice. It will also be a process that victims will have opportunity to participate for the first time on the ground. We still look forward to a more participatory process to this uh, war crime trial that kicks up that the librarians will have the opportunity to see the extent of this trial and of course the security of victims and witnesses is also important. Currently, librarians are divided about the establishment of a war crimes court amid major pressure from the international community to get justice for wartime atrocities. For many war victims in the country, this is a major development in the campaign for the establishment of a war crimes court for Liberia. Wearing a grey blouse with a pair of marching footwear is Yasa Gevla, 47, a war victim who thinks bringing closure to war towns atrocities is the best way forward. All those who committed atrocity in Liberia will pay for that deeds. There are so many war victims around here. I feel very disappointed. I feel down the reason being is you don't have to get the kind of people in society provoking people. I feel very bad. So the war crime code was for then It will bring them to book. It will bring peace and security. It will make the war victims will feel happy. Meanwhile, two Liberian lawmakers are warning alleged perpetrators of wartime atrocities in Liberia to stop making provocative statements against Liberians. They have also called for the establishment of a war and economic crimes court. Representative Hansen Kiazuru wants warlords to be remorseful for their roles in the bloody conflict. When a warlord is sitting in a peaceful environment and talking about fiasco, that's the English they know. That's their thinking. But I can assure you, no warlord can bring any war here. They have nothing to say. To say you arrest any one of them, trust me, nothing can come out of it. They are they are paper tiger. Even those that were general to them, how long we have had ceasefire? Some of their general were 25, 30 years. They are 20 years to that. That is almost 50 years. Who the old man can be saying in front of people? So you know, we shouldn't even take them serious. Senator Steven Zago agrees. What they should be doing is to be telling us the truth and confessing. And asking for reconciliation. They shouldn't be on the road of threatening anybody. Someone that's toothless, a war criminal or a war suspect, should, in my mind, reach out to the people rather than doing threatening remarks. Nothing they can do to order. So they better shut their mouth and be able to work with all and make sure that uh, we civilly land this country. Uh, we want to create an independent environment in West Africa, not unless you try our resolve. The lawmakers' comments are in response to former warlord, now Senator Prince Johnson's latest comments that a war crimes court will never be established in Liberia.
The former rebel general turned a preacher told the congregation of Christ Chapel of Faith Ministry, a church he built overseas, that the campaign for the establishment of a war crimes court in Liberia was a fiasco. While the majority are welcoming the move, Aaron Wilson, a resident of Lakbazi community of Monrovia, is skeptical about the move as he fears the trial will undermine Liberia's peace and stability. Like what they did with Mr. Taylor, where he was pre-George before the time. They won't be good. Come with a clean man. Clean man, sit down and let the facts, and let understand the facts. Prosecute the man for what he did. But don't come with preconceived mind. Then it will not be all right. So one way or another, we will occupy in a war. It is disheartening. Nobody can bring a war crime court here. But activists maintain this is not the case, saying the trial will give hope to the war victims. For RFR's Africa Calling, I'm Darlene Tom Popper reporting from Monrovia. In 2009, the defunct Truth and Reconciliation Commission recommended the establishment of a war crimes court. But at the moment, Liberian legislators are yet to pass any law to approve a war crimes court for the country. Check us out on Twitter, Africa underscore underscore calling. We're at Africa underscore underscore calling. We're going to turn our attention now to the fight against COVID-19. And a topic we've talked about before here at Africa Calling, vaccines. Various initiatives are in place to supply COVID-19 vaccines to the African continent. But as Daniel Finnan finds out, these are progressing slowly. And the number of doses agreed for African countries is lacking. There's currently three ways African countries could secure COVID-19 vaccines. Their own deals directly with pharmaceutical companies through the COVAX facility, a global initiative designed to provide fair access to vaccines, which provides some support to African countries through donors. And AVAT, the African Vaccine Acquisition Task Team, put in place by the African Union Regional Bloc. COVAX recently announced their forecasts for vaccine distribution. Here's Dr. Mashidizo Moeti, the Africa Director for the World Health Organization. In much-awaited news, the COVAX facility has informed African countries of the first allocations of COVID-19 vaccines. Nearly 90 million doses of the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine could start arriving on the continent later this month. In addition, around 320,000 doses of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine have been allocated to four African countries, Cabo Verde, Rwanda, South Africa and Tunisia. Deliveries are also expected later on in February. Africa has indeed watched other reasons start COVID-19 vaccination campaigns a little bit from the sidelines. This planned rollout is a critical first step in ensuring that the continent gets equitable access to vaccines. Aside from COVAX, AVAT has secured access to 270 million doses of vaccine, but this isn't supported by donors and the African Export-Import Bank is guaranteeing the purchase with some $2 billion. 50 million doses are expected to be available between April and June. AVAT has also offers for another 400 million vaccine doses. But this still doesn't hit the target of covering 60% of the African continent's population, as set out by the Africa Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the Africa CDC. This 60% is needed to help create herd immunity and block transmission of the coronavirus. 
And COVAX, for example, only aims to provide doses for at least 20% of countries' populations. Many questions remain. Masoka Fala works at the National Public Health Institute of Liberia. He's also a visiting lecturer at the Harvard School of Public Health in the U.S. We discussed the constraints of both AVAT and COVAX. Talking about the AVAT facility, is it clear to you when the vaccines will be delivered and all of the mechanics of how that is going to be working? It's not very clear. The optimistic goal is that probably within two months it will be delivered. Uh, for instance, I do know it's going to go through a bank. Does that necessarily mean African country gets a donation? That's not clear. Does that necessarily mean it's going to be a loan that will be facilitated through these banks? If it's a loan, how long is the loan? What happens to African countries that already have huge loans? So basically, it's not clear to me. The, the AVAC is not clear to me. Can African country afford it? At what interest rate? How long? Is it an, a loan with interest? What happened to those countries already heavily indebted? The issue then with the COVAX facility for those countries which are eligible to receive support, the issue there is whether there's going to be enough donors to step up and pay for those countries to receive the vaccine through the COVAX facility. Exactly. That's one. To even meet the 20%. The 20% is not adequate, but just to meet the 20%. But obviously, what I got is that it will be ready in six months, and it will only account for 3.2% of the African population because of the low payment. But the arrangement is that each of the wealthy countries that provide will get some of the vaccine in return. I guess then the question then becomes, do you have enough confidence in African countries acting on their own unilaterally to be able to purchase the vaccine stocks that they need? No, they can't because this is, this is the economics. African countries are already going through a lot to try to protect themselves. You know, the massive lockdown, they shut down trade, they shut down their airports. And so that took a big toll on the economies of Africa just to protect themselves at the onset of the, the bar. So they're struggling already. On their own, at the current market price, there will be very few African countries on their own that will be able to procure the vaccine. The two platforms are good, but they have their challenges. Like we just discussed, COVA has a challenge of funding and trying to see if they can reach the bar above the 20%. AVAC is going through a banging process that we need to understand whether it's going to be grant or it's going to be loan with interest. Each of these platforms are great because it, it, it does collective backing for the African continent, but we need to refine these two platforms better. Can we do a combination of soft loan and grants through the AVAD platform? It all comes down to money. The Africa CDC said this week that 20 countries have expressed an interest in AVAT while for COVAX, some 47 African countries will benefit from the facility. RFI's Houses Service on the line. We now turn to the Houses Service in Lagos. The Nigerian government has extended a deadline till April 6 for every mobile phone user to register their line with a national identification number or forfeit their phone number. The measure has generated confusion across the country as owners of cell phones have stormed the offices of the National Identity Management Commission in an attempt to obtain the NIN 
before the deadline expires. The previous deadline was this week. We have Garba Aliuzaria from RFI's Houses Service in Lagos to bring us more. Garba, are people still trying to register their SIM cards? Can you describe what it looks outside Nigeria's National Identity Management Commissions? I mean, there must be a lot of people. Yes, people are very much interested in registering their their SIM because of the publicity it has received in recent days through the media. As a matter of fact, the campaign now is that uh, without the NIM, that is the National Identification Number, uh, people will not be able to have access to certain facilities uh, from government. This is making people to rush to various centers for the registration exercise. You know, uh, as well, you may be aware, prior to the directive, the government has directed all the telecommunication providers to halt further sales of new lines to everyone. So everyone wants to make sure that uh, his line he acquires from long before now and which uh, one is known to have. Everyone wants to make sure that he or she uh, maintain that uh, line. Now, the government decided to extend the deadline, which was originally this week, but they extended it until April 6th. But why is the government enforcing this measure now? Well, you see, initially the government gave the telecommunication providers up till December to ensure that uh, everyone register their lines. But the deadline has to be shifted following a series of complaints from owners of uh, cell phones about extortions and all sorts of discrepancies in obtaining the national uh, identification number. But the Nigerian government said the decision to launch the SIM card registration rules is basically to stop insurgents and criminals from using unregistered SIM cards. Altogether, I believe there are up to 200 million uh, SIM cards in Nigeria based on, on sources. But it is a well-known fact that in Nigeria, uh, insurgency and kidnappers freely contact relations of victims to demand for ransoms. And they do this using telephones. They can call you with a telephone without number, hide the number, and call a relation and demand for huge sums of money. And uh, if one doesn't pay the end, the consequences may be uh, terrible to bear. But it's COVID-19 time. If there's a lot of people waiting outside trying to register, are they social distancing? Are they wearing masks? I mean, this could be a major health hazard. Not at all. The question of COVID-19 protocol does not exist in most of these registration centers because of the crowdy nature of people trying to ensure that they register. Uh, in other words, no social distancing at all. But face masks are worn by many people who cares. Oh, that's good. Oh, okay. But, I mean, how about people who aren't Nigerian who have Nigerian SIM cards? I mean, there's a lot of trading going on, like cross-border trading, people coming from bordering countries. Do they have to do something extra, or what can they do? Do they also have to wait in line, or can you tell us about that? Well, Yes, this is the big question everyone is asking because uh, as you are aware, Nigeria's neighbors, that is uh, Chad, Cameroon, Niger, and Benin Republic, uh, many of these people 
owns one or more lines from Nigerian uh, SIM cards. And most of these people are now in a dilemma uh, as to what uh, to do to avoid forfeiting the Nigerian line. What many Nigerians are now asking is that what will happen to owners of these lines, uh, phone lines from neighboring countries, considering the fact that uh, most of the insurgencies and banditry and other crimes are blamed on nationals of some of these countries' neighbor. So only time will tell how the government will go about this. Now, Garba, have you registered your SIM card? And if you have, how long did it take you? Indeed, I did register long before now, uh, but not without some bottlenecks because it took me up to about four days uh, when I registered early last year. So I don't think I belong to the category of people who may complain any further. That was Garba Ali Uzaria, journalist on our Houses Service in Lagos. Federal government authorities have reportedly said they're looking to see how biometric-backed bank verification numbers, or BVNs, can be integrated with and replaced by the NIN. The BVN is a scheme introduced by the Central Bank of Nigeria with the goal of protecting bank account holders. Analysis The African Union Regional Bloc wrapped up its 34th summit last weekend. It was all held online given the situation with COVID-19. Musa Faki Mahmat was re-elected as the head of the AU Commission, while Congolese President Felix Chesekedi was appointed the ceremonial head of the Continental Union. RFI's Daniel Finnan is here for some analysis on the hot topics. It was the first time the chairperson of the AU Commission stood for election unopposed. Chadian diplomat Musa Faki took 51 votes from the 55 member states Addressing African leaders, he said conflict was one of the big issues holding Africa back. Community conflicts, violent extremism, violent electoral crises, transnational crime and trafficking are the real plagues of Africa which stop it from moving forward. We must put an end to these tragedies which cling to the continent and degrade its image in order to give hope to Africans and to build the Africa we want. South African President Cyril Ramaphosa stood down at the summit and handed over the baton to Felix Chesekedi, President of the Democratic Republic of Congo. Ramaphosa had spearheaded some of the AU's efforts on the fight against COVID-19, which was one of the main topics on the agenda of the summit. In his speech, Chesekedi said African countries must invest in their people. In addition to strengthening our healthcare systems, now is the time to invest more in education and scientific research. Therefore, it is of significant strategic interest that each member state set aside a good part of its budget for the development of its human capital, which is the main asset, the only one capable of mobilizing effectively to solve specific problems and face global challenges. On the strength of my vision of an African Union at the service of African people, I specifically propose bringing our organization out of the conference rooms, away from the hard drives of our computers and the well-crafted files of our secretariats. I intend to bring it to the schoolyards, to the heart of the refugee camps, to the middle of the markets of our city, and the fields of our villages.
Notably absent from the agenda of the summit was the war in Ethiopia's Tigray region. While one of the reoccurring topics that keeps coming up was reforms to the intergovernmental bloc, Rwanda's President Paul Kagame has been the point man on this. Some countries want an overhaul of the AU, but others are less receptive. To get some insight on this, besides other things, we spoke to Babatunde Fagbaibo, an expert on the African Union at the University of South Africa. We started off by asking him about Musafaki's re-election. He's politically savvy, so he, he understands how to play play the politics of continental regionalism, and essentially that's the reason why I mean he stood unopposed. So I think it's also one also has to understand it in the context of um, the AU reforms. One of his achievements has been able to also steer the course of um, of the AU reforms. I mean, working hand in hand with Paul Kagame of Rwanda. That's also been a positive aspect of his first term. But there still remain serious concerns. I mean, there have been reports of um, um, issues of mismanagement, issues of nepotism, sexual harassment. At the African Union, you know, there has to be a sense of responsibility and there has to be a sense of accountability. Why wasn't the conflict in Ethiopia's Tigray region mentioned? This seems to have been the big elephant in the room that wasn't discussed. We are talking about um, Tigray as a big elephant in the room, which it is a big elephant in the room, but there are many big elephants in the room, right? Um, Uganda's election, the suppression of opposition members in Uganda. Look, those are those are big issues. There are many big issues that were not discussed. But again, you would understand why issues like that um, or why Tigray was not um, um, discussed. One of the bad habits of the African Union is to also move away from, you know, this kind of regime boosting, regime consolidation, African Brotherhood kind of approach to handling things and not wanting to call each other out for for transgressions. Again, I think the the African Union has, has acted true to character. And these are some of the issues that will need to really, really be confronted if the African Union is to achieve um, critical issues in its, um, in its reforms. Reforms to the AU was another big item on the agenda. And Rwanda's president, Paul Kagame, has been responsible for leading reforms within the bloc. And he's frustrated at the slow speed of reforms. What's your view? The reality is that many member states, I mean, member states are not on the same page with regards to, to the reform process. Um, you would remember that even at the beginning of the reform process, um, South Africa and some other Southern African countries had complained behind closed doors. And some had even complained about how Kagame had approached it from a very dictatorial kind of um, position where there's not been general consensus and consultation in terms of moving moving the organization forward. So there's been this concerns. The fact that power still resides with member states at the African Union shows that, um, and this is member states actually flexing their muscles, saying, in any case, we have to take the final decision on many of these issues. We can actually slow it down. We can frustrate the process. We can be the clog in the wheel of the process. So these are some of the issues. There were some decisions taken on reducing the number of commissioners from eight to six and also making the Africa CDC more independent. So there was there was some progress in terms of reforms, I guess. So there's been some wins, no doubt about that. There's been there's been serious wins. 
But the question remains. So now we have reduced the number of commissioners, right, from eight to six, without necessarily transferring sufficient powers to the, to the commission. Then it's merely cosmetic then to make it more compact and, you know, to save some money and things like that. Okay, that's good. But the thing is this, they still have to perform. They still have to drive the reform process. So the question is, where are the powers? So the big issues, the big issues on transferring serious powers to the organization is actually the elephant in the room that has not really been addressed. But when it comes to the high politics, the sensitive issues, those are things that are still found wanting and has to be addressed to make um, this reform process more concrete and more progressive. Babatunde Fagbaibo there from the University of South Africa. He's written extensively on the restructuring of the bloc. The AU was established in 2002 and reforms have been long mooted. Many commentators see reforms to the AU as the key to making the bloc more effective on issues such as conflict, which, as we heard from Musafaki, continue to hold the continent back. Africa Calling, produced by Radio France International. We're almost at the end of our program, but we have music maven Alison Hurd in the studio. Hi, Alison. What song do you have for us today? Hi, Laurangela. You've been talking a lot about Pan-Africanism in the program today, and the African star who always comes to mind when we talk about that is, of course, Nigeria's Fela Kuti, the father of Afrobeat. Mm. His two sons, Sheun and Femi, followed in his footsteps, but so has his grandson, Made, who is uh, Femi Kuti's son. So he grew up with his dad in the new Africa shrine in Lagos, and he's been playing bass, guitar and saxophone in his dad's Positive Force band for years now. But he's finally released his own album. It's called Forward and he plays all the instruments he sings. He, it's, it's worth a listen. He does a great job. I've chosen the track Free Your Mind which I guess speaks for itself. Uh, He's a bit less directly political than his granddad was, but he's still very much in the Kuti family spirit. He told RFI recently, you can't just think about success, money, cars and celebrity. You also have to think about what you can give back to your community, to the black community. And the album Forward very much talks about the strength that you can get uh, through working for your community. That's what he said. I hope you enjoy the song. Excellent. Well, thanks for listening to episode 17 of Africa Calling. We'll leave you with Made Kuti. I'm Laura Angela Benyato. This episode was produced by Daniel Finnan, edited and recorded by Erwan Rome, Nicolas Doro, and Cecile Pompiani. Goodbye for now. Free your mind, free your mind, free your mind.